Hi, this is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. Today we're going to talk again about Israel's offensive in Gaza, whether there's any hope of ending it anytime soon, plus violence in the West Bank and on Israel's border with Lebanon. On the ground in Gaza, heavy battles raged. This Israeli military footage shows soldiers walking into a building they say is a Hamas weapons manufacturing site. And from the air, Israel's fiery bombardment striking right next to this hospital. Fleeing the embattled north, a torrent of people, tens of thousands attempting the perilous journey, but refuge is hard to find. This was supposed to be a safe zone. It's nearly five weeks since Hamas's 7th of October attack on southern Israel, which killed more than 1,200 Israelis. Israel's bombing and ground operations in Gaza have now killed, according to the local authorities, more than 11,000 Palestinians, including more than 4,500 children, and left much of Gaza's north in ruins. This week, the UN warned of the possibility of starvation in Gaza, given the blockade of the Strip and massive food shortages. Reportedly, there's a deal in the works that would see Hamas release a large number of the 240 hostages it and other Palestinian militants hold in exchange for a pause in Israel's military operations, seemingly of five days. So far, though, that deal hasn't happened. There's also been a sharp escalation of violence in the West Bank. Following the October 7 terror attacks, the IDF conducting near-nightly raids, it says, are meant to take out Hamas militants, while settler attacks on Palestinians are also on the rise. The UN reports that some 180 Palestinians have been killed in the West Bank since the 7th of October, and that 2023 has been the deadliest year for Palestinians in the area for decades. This past week also saw an uptick in the exchanges of fire between Israel and the Lebanese militant group Hezbollah on Israel's northern border. The skies over the Israel-Lebanon border have been thick with smoke almost constantly for the last month. But in recent days, the exchange of fire between Israeli troops and Hezbollah fighters has intensified. Israel's military spokesperson says its focus is on Gaza, but troops are at a high level of readiness in the north. We'll do this week's episode in three parts. I'll talk in a moment to Heiko Women, crisis groups Lebanon, Iraq, Syria director, about the fighting with Hezbollah and risks of escalation in Israel's north. After that, I'll have a longer conversation with Daniel Levy, head of the US Middle East Project and a former Israeli negotiator about diplomatic efforts to get the hostages out and at least pause the fighting in Gaza. First, though, I'm happy to welcome back on to Hani Mustafa, crisis group's Palestine expert, to talk about what's happening in the West Bank. Tahani, welcome back on. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So why don't we start with a few more details about the violence in the West Bank over the past few weeks. So the situation in the West Bank has deteriorated quite significantly since October the 7th. We've seen crackdowns, limitations on movement that have completely paralysed the economy. We've seen Israeli forces kill something like 185 Palestinians in the West Bank since October the 7th. Many of those have been killed in clashes with uh, IDF security forces. That has brought the total killed this year to something like 395, far more than what we saw in 2022, which the UN declared as the deadliest year for Palestinians since 2006. We've also seen the Israeli security forces conduct a mass arrest campaign 
where over now uh, 2,300 Palestinians in the West Bank have been arrested, largely on the basis of critical media posts or expressing support for armed resistance or sometimes just sympathy with Gaza. You know, often these individuals don't necessarily have any kind of political affiliation. And we've also seen settler violence. We're also seeing the formation of what are effectively settler militias. They're not necessarily in army uniforms, but they are now manning uh, the exit and entry points of a lot of Palestinian towns and villages, especially under Area C, which is under full Israeli control, uh, which means that Palestinians are effectively held hostage in, in their own localities. Many of them that do try to leave are subject to attacks and are sometimes killed. And Tahani, the settler militias that you're talking about, I understand Israeli Minister of National Security, this far-right minister in Netanyahu's government, Itamir Ben-Gavir, has organised getting more weapons to the settlers, to some of these militias. That's right. There has been a significant mobilisation of settlers since the 7th of October. Israel has recruited volunteers from its settler population to not only fill the position of the Israeli security forces that would typically man checkpoints, but also they have now um, started to form their own militias in the West Bank, encouraged by ministers like Ben Gavir. These aren't anything new, but they have become far more prominent um, and better equipped since the 7th of October, being issued government weapons. And now the same government is is requesting an additional 25,000 more weapons from the US in order to arm these militias. And they're not protecting Israeli settler communities. They're terrorizing Palestinian communities. I think at the time prior to the 7th of October, the UN was recording something about an average of three serious settler attacks a day. That figure has gone up to something of an average of around seven attacks a day. Now, the problem is, unfortunately, journalists, a lot of civil society groups that do actively try and uh, document these attacks are also affected by movement restrictions, which means that any kind of accountability, scrutiny, and even sometimes... Uh, protection that these groups can offer local communities is completely gone. So that figure could be much higher, but unfortunately there just isn't any capacity right now to document what's happening. And Tahani, do you want to say something about the movement restrictions, both the formal movement restrictions that Israel has imposed, but also, I mean, in practice, the informal ones, which are some of the settler blockades that you've talked about. Do you want to talk a little bit about what that's meant for daily life in the West Bank at the moment? You know, we've not only seen Israeli um, security forces create makeshift checkpoints at the entrances and exits of uh, Palestinian urban areas. Ramallah itself has seen the construction of two now permanent checkpoints on two of its entrances that have effectively cut it off from the northern West Bank. Local settler militias are also trying to create their own makeshift checkpoints in these areas. Now, what that has meant has meant that Palestinian daily life has been significantly disrupted in the sense that most schools and universities have had to go online for fear of safety of their students and also the limitation of being able to actually physically get to school or university. The PA, in terms of its own civil servants, even its security forces have been significantly limited in terms of their movement and operation, because many of them are, again, entrapped in in the localities that they were prior to the 7th of October, which was also a weekend in the West Bank, which means that you obviously have very few uh, civil servants and security officials being able to, to actually do what they're meant to be doing. You're also having, in some cases, the shortages of essential services and goods. You know, a lot of imports that come from Israel have been withheld. Palestinians can't access their farms, which means things like fresh produce. In some cases, you have an abundance of, but then in other localities that are much further away, you don't because the movement of goods at the moment is very difficult. Farmers have had limited access to their farms, either through official movement restrictions or through the threat of settler violence. 
We saw two weeks ago a Palestinian farmer trying to attend to his olive harvest who was killed while he was, you know, picking olives by settlers. Farmers across Area C, you know, they're, they're all in a very similar situation. Many of them can't access their farms. In many cases, they've had their trees uprooted. In some cases, settlers have not only killed livestock, they've also destroyed agricultural equipment. And you mentioned the PA, the Palestinian Authority. Do you want to talk about how it has responded, how Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas and his ruling Fatah party, what they've done since October the 7th? At the moment, the PA is playing out a waiting game. They haven't come out with frequent statements. We did see uh, Mahmoud Abbas condemn the 7th of October attacks and also claim that Hamas doesn't represent Palestinians, which he then had to retract given some of the blowback he received. We've also seen divisions within the ranks, even you know the top tier of Fatah have come out and openly declared the, that their strategy towards Hamas, uh, their failures at reconciliation was a huge mistake. So Fatah leaders have come out and said it was a mistake not to have put more serious effort into reconciling with Hamas earlier. So there were these various attempts over the past decade and a half to broker a deal between Fatah and Hamas. None of them worked. And now Fatah leaders say they wish they'd made more of an effort, that that might have taken Hamas, Gazan politics, in a different, less tragic direction. Yes, and that includes prominent figures and some members of the Fatah Revolutionary Council. Now, Prime Minister Mohammed Shatay has come out and said that the PA um, is trying to engage in some intensive diplomatic uh, work behind the scenes in, in terms of trying to push for a ceasefire, in terms of getting uh, aid into Gaza. But one way or another, you know, the PA is ultimately putting itself on, on the margins for now and, and just trying to, to kind of wait out and see what happens. But what has been very clear from closed door discussions, uh, even when it comes to thinking about the day after, is that the PA have now recognised that you cannot marginalise Hamas. And so now they themselves have rejected any idea of taking control of Gaza without uh, some kind of reconciliation effort. So Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has himself said that the PA is not going back to Gaza. That might change, of course. It's not clear how long Netanyahu himself will be in power. But the US and others still float the idea of the PA being an option for ruling Gaza after the war. But what you're saying, in essence, is that leading Fatah and PA politicians say that they won't go back absent some form of reconciliation with Hamas. I mean, the details haven't been yet fleshed out, but the PA is trying to make its position clear in, with international stakeholders that any talk of any kind of interim or intermediary administrative body has to include Hamas that they can just go in on the backs of Israeli tanks. Partly because they have no traction, people are just simply not willing to listen um, any longer to leaders that they find are completely out of touch. So, you know, at, at this point, the PA has effectively recognised this and, and do recognise that if they're struggling now in the West Bank, um, the challenge of, of being able to effectively govern Gaza is going to be twice the struggle that they're facing now. And Tahani, you're obviously in touch with a lot of people in different parts of the West Bank. I know that it's sort of hard to generalise, but can you give a sense how people are seeing things, not just what's happening in Gaza, but the dangers and the, the challenges they themselves face? I mean, I think the West Bank, the, so the initial reaction was one of shock. I think people were just completely taken aback. You know, I, I recall um, conversations where people were simply just anticipating the absolute worst. Um, you know, Palestinians were fearful given the scale of the attack and the death toll and the way Israel has reacted in the past to lone wolf attacks, to previous assaults on Gaza. So, you know, people did anticipate the worst to come. 
They're very fearful in terms of what this could also mean for the West Bank itself, especially a territory and a people that really had nothing to do with what happened on the 7th of October. And yet they're now being meted out collective punishment as well. So there is a fear that the sorts of trends we're now seeing could actually become the more permanent status quo, that this could be the start of a more violent phase of the occupation. In terms of, you know, the things that Palestinians within Area C that are subject to settler violence, again, people are very uh, reactive in terms of trying to deal with it. But the means to deal with it are very limited. And then you also have the lack of leadership. There is no leadership to advocate for them. The PA has very limited capacity to deal with something like this. If they were to try and, uh, you know, police settlers, first of all, it's not in their jurisdiction. And second of all, the kind of collective punishment they're very much aware of that that could then bring on, on their communities. So I think at the moment, most Palestinians, especially in the West Bank, feel almost helpless. And I think that's also what's breeding the fear. Tahani, thanks for coming on. Thank you. So I'm now going to turn to the conversation with Heiko Women, who is Crisis Group's Lebanon, Iraq, Syria director. And I started by asking him about the uptick in violence on the Israel-Lebanon border over the past week. So the intensity of the conflict uh, on the border between Hezbollah mostly and, and the Israeli uh, army has been inching up. In the beginning, it was on a low level. Um, it was maybe for the first two weeks uh, confined to the immediate border area, like five kilometers on each side of the border. And that has expanded uh, gradually. So Israel is uh, hitting deeper into Lebanon. Hezbollah is heading deeper into Israel. Um, Hezbollah is, is using uh, other kinds of equipment now. Um, they have done combined uh, drone and, and anti-tank missile attacks. Every now and then there's a missile shower getting uh, 20, 30 missiles going in the direction of Haifa. Uh, the Israelis have essentially, to some extent, one could say, adopted a policy of shooting at uh, a lot in the near border area. And uh, 10 days ago, uh, roughly, there was a family killed. Um, so three young girls and her grandmother who were killed by a missile shot from a drone, it seems. And that led to another round of escalation with Hezbollah uh, also now uh, apparently uh, no longer taking too much care when it comes to avoiding civilians. But right now we are still in a situation where this seems to be under control. So we are still on the ladder where both sides uh, very consciously uh, choose their tools and respond to what the other side is doing. And last time you were on, you talked about Hezbollah strikes further into Israel on Haifa, potentially being a sign that things were getting up to another level. How much should we read into that? I think what we can say, we are now on another level. Concerning the intensity of the fighting, the larger weapons, bigger payloads, uh, more casualties, uh, bigger theater. And that, of course, means the risk of uh, something going terribly wrong, the risk that Hezbollah kills 10 soldiers at some point in one hit, uh, or maybe 10 civilians, um, or maybe that one of those Palestinian groups uh, were also involved uh, do this, you know, that one of these uh, unguided missiles that are shot in the direction of Haifa um, actually hit something that is very painful for the Israelis. Uh, and the same could ha happen on the other side. I mean, the Israelis shooting yet another car with a family inside. The Israelis uh, shooting a missile at a building where they believe that it's part of the Israeli infrastructure. It turns out civilians have been living in this in this building. 
But that kind of uh, development uh, is possible. The danger becomes bigger, the bigger the theater becomes, and the bigger the weapons become, because in the end, you know, the longer the range you shoot at, the less control you have over what you hit. And Heiko, since we last spoke, Hezbollah leader uh, Hassan Nasrallah has made a couple of speeches. The first one a few weeks ago, I think, people felt would signal how Hezbollah intended to sort of get involved. And although the speech was filled with Nasrallah's usual sort of fiery language, in fact, it pretty much signaled that Hezbollah was sort of wary of itself opening up a full-scale war with Israel. Yeah, that's pretty much uh, what he said. It's about um, uh, exerting pressure on Israel, tying down Israeli troops uh, on the northern border, um, creating internal pressure by uh, causing the displacement of uh, people from the border areas. And that adds to the general pressure that has been created by the displacement from the areas adjacent to Gaza. And apart from that, they want to deter. They want to show the Israelis, uh, you know, you want to come for us, think again. We have heard voices from the Israeli side that uh, suggest that this is not completely impossible. I mean, that there are people thinking about it. Those are the priorities. Deter the Israelis, add pressure. And Heiko, the U.S. Uh, clearly doesn't want the exchanges of fire between Israel and Hezbollah to escalate. It's not only been warning Hezbollah, Iran, not to get involved. It's deployed these carrier strike groups, these military assets into the region. But also U.S. officials seem to be pushing Israel behind the scenes, sort of not to step things up, not to let things escalate on the Lebanese border. I mean, the U.S. has not only behind the scenes, but openly argued against Northern Front, against Israel escalating. Uh, there was a phone call, uh, I think last Saturday, between the Israeli Minister of Defense and uh, the U.S. Secretary of Defense, you know, where, where, where again, this, the, the U.S. side emphasized this. And the fact that these calls actually in, appear in the media attributed uh, not to some unknown source, but to the Secretary of Defense himself on the American side. Me, I mean, that, that's a very, very clear messaging. The Americans very clearly don't want it. And I don't think in uh, at this point in time, Israel has the option to go against American wishes. Um, they need to keep the window that they have for their operation uh, in, in Gaza uh, open as long as possible from their perspective, and uh, you need uh, American support for that. And they don't can afford to go against what the Americans explicitly uh, want on the other front. But the fact that, uh, as you say, Secretary of Defense Austin and these things have become public, I mean, presumably that reflects a genuine worry in Washington that there may be some sort of escalation. I'm sure people worry you know, that there could be an, an, uh, an unintended escalation that uh, things fly off the hook simply because the tools that, that both sides are using uh, create a, a wide margin for error that is uh, that could be have catastrophic consequences. And you had Israeli officials who made these statements, you know, like you know, about uh, you know, like doing to Beirut the same that that they were doing to Gaza. Obviously, this doesn't serve to tone things down and lower the temperature. Heiko, thanks for coming on. Thanks a lot, Richard. So we're now going to turn to Gaza, and in particular to diplomatic efforts to get the hostages that Palestinian militants hold out, to pause Israel's bombing and ground operations, and maybe to find an end 
to the war. And I'm very happy to welcome on Daniel Levy. Daniel is president of the US Middle East Project, which is a partner, friend of Crisis Group. He's a former Israeli negotiator under Prime Ministers Yitzhak Rabin and Ehud Barak. Daniel, welcome on. Thank you, Richard. So I want to go straight into talking about the deal that seems to have been on the table for some time now. We've talked about it on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, and since then, it's been quite widely reported. In essence, Hamas would release some of the hostages, people have talked about 50 or so, in return for a pause, five days is what, again, what people are talking about, a pause in the military operations. Maybe some Palestinian prisoners also released, that's not clear. Now, obviously, it would be a good thing to stop the violence in Gaza, even just temporarily. And we're speaking on Wednesday. We don't know if that deal will go through this week. I wanted to ask you, Daniel, how optimistic we can be that a deal like that could lead to a longer term ceasefire, given that, you know, as we've talked about on the podcast before, Israelis across the political spectrum still seem determined to deal more of a blow to Hamas. I wouldn't deal in percentages of likelihood. I would deal in how one makes the most of the possibility that it offers. And I think the reason that it's seen as the best available on-ramp, that, that, that narrow path to getting towards a permanent cessation, dialing this right down so that the terrible casualties that we've seen and the destruction that we've seen in Gaza can be brought to an end. The reason it's seen as the best possible on-ramp is if you can get, as you say, it could well be a five-day pause. If you could get that, number one, gives significant momentum to building towards a permanent pause. It's much harder to restart than it is to just continue as you're in this. And so I think the pressure on Israel would be significantly ramped up from the outside. One. Number two, it feels like the thing that even an administration that has shown itself so ineffective in carrying Israel to where it wants to get it with the Biden administration, this feels like an issue where they could put their fists on the table and say, this is Americans. These are American citizens. And harder for Israel to say no to that. Thirdly, which is crucial, is this dynamic inside Israel. There is already a conversation around priorities. Is the priority to pursue the military mission? Is the priority to get the Israelis home? The proof of concept that a very significant release would give, which is that there can be a mediated, negotiated package to get them out, would then become overwhelming. And you would have two significant vectors then in the Israeli conversation rather than two imbalanced vectors between the need to pursue the military objectives, need to get the people home. And those would stand in greater contrast to each other. And two other things which I think really matter, Richard. One is there has been an overwhelming focus for the last five plus weeks, understandably in an Israeli context, on the stories of horrific loss and alongside that stories of courage. 
you would now have a new storyline. Stories of lives reborn in a way. You'd have all those personal testimonies of people coming out. And I don't think one should underestimate the, the impetus that would give to, oh my God, we want more of these stories. And lastly, the Israelis are at some significant level building their victory narrative. Now, again, you mentioned this, Richard. It seems that a deal was available about three weeks ago prior to the ground incursion. The deal is still there. Israel is saying the deal is only possible because of the pressure brought by the ground incursion. If that's the narrative they need in order to end this, so be it. That's fine. But also, you're beginning to hear some talk in Israel that the clock is running out. Gaza City was the headquarters. So maybe the combination of those things and bringing the people home gives an Israeli narrative out. By the way, it's not one that Netanyahu, some of his war cabinet and some of the military leadership will feel that thrilled with and they're not looking forward to the morning after. But that now is, is how things might play out in the Israeli debate. So one way to think about it is how Israel constructs, a, as you say, a victory narrative. What story Israeli leaders are going to tell but presumably alongside the narrative, there's also a reality. How much do they actually feel they have, in their eyes, destroyed, degraded Hamas's military infrastructure so that the group can't threaten another attack similar to the one on 7th of October? Now, we can talk about the effectiveness of the military operation, how realistic its goals are, and of course, the terrible cost in Palestinian lives and the destruction of Gaza. But do you think the Israeli government, whatever narrative it can put together, yet feel that it has dealt Hamas enough of a blow? It's an extremely important consideration. And I think the simple answer is no. They won't have felt they've done enough. I think the expanded answer is twofold. The ostensible goal of this operation is unattainable, which is the total eradication, as they have defined it, of Hamas's uh, governance and, and military capacity. Which doesn't mean that they're not going to try or that this will easily transition to stopping this. However, the question is not so much, I think, whether they feel they've done enough. I think the question is, what kind of internal and external pressure will they come under to stop this, even though it would have fallen short of the unattainable goal that they are trying to achieve? The internal pressure we've discussed, the dynamic shifts towards getting the rest out. The external pressure, I would say, is a really important variable. You do hear now Western leaders shifting their narrative in public. We're pretty sure that in private, that's where the American conversation with the Israelis is going, even if 
the gap between private and public, if it's too large, the Israelis know how to play that situation. But the cost of continuing to pursue this mission, given what has been done by way of destruction, devastation, loss of civilian lives, loss of children's lives, I think means that they're running out of road. If enough pressure is applied, and again, then put it back through the prism of the internal scene. And much as there is unity to a significant degree in the Israeli Jewish public in favor of the mission, there is not unity around the political leadership conducting this mission. Netanyahu is, polls would suggest, more unpopular uh, than ever. And so if you combine those factors, then even without having achieved everything, but having something of a narrative of some kind of mission accomplished, that's how you might be able to get out of this, not without external pressure, though. And we'll come to that external pressure in a moment. And first, maybe I, I should be clear, I mean, crisis group, we called for a ceasefire weeks ago now. And we argued, as you have, that for all the horror and the terrible trauma for Israelis of the 7th of October attacks, its goals, as they were setting them out, weren't achievable, or at least that the human cost, the political cost of trying to achieve them would be too high. Plus, I would say that although we don't have good insight into the details of Israeli military planning, we do know that there's a lot of disquiet in the US, including seemingly in uh, the Defence Department, about what Israel is doing. But, you know, with all that said, and maybe just to push you a bit, Daniel, it's still not clear what a political option looks like, right? I mean, a political way to address some of Israel's fears about Hamas. It's easy to say the cost of the military operation is too high, but the political options, I mean, the Hamas leadership is not going to give itself up, but maybe an option is that, you know, the leadership leaves Gaza, some of the Kassam brigades disarming, you know, even that just seems a long, long way off including talking to people who sort of know how Hamas leaders are thinking. There's not really much sign that even were Israel to accept something along those lines, that Hamas themselves would. So, first of all, the Israeli messaging is that there has been a significant degrading. So they are talking about major Hamas battalions being taken out. They are talking about Gaza City as having been the heart of operations, as they would say, being taken out. I think it's very reasonable to question just how much that is the case. But that will be the Israeli claim. I think part of the reason of wanting to keep this going, and as you say, they knew that if they accepted the prisoner deal three weeks ago, they probably would have already been on the corridor to having to end this. So I think some of the reason to keep this going is to do more of those things. Some of it, I think, is in the hope they come across Yahya Sinwar and Mohammed Dayf, the most high-profile uh, Hamas targets. That's one of the reasons that, that they want to keep going. I do not think the scenarios of disarmament are realistic. I tend to think the scenario of a mediated departure of uh, Al-Qassam Brigade Hamas fighters from the territory is unrealistic. In the Lebanon-1982 war, you, of course, had the PLO left Beirut for Tunis. I don't think that's going to be something Israel or Hamas will agree to. I also think that an end to this phase of fighting, this ceasefire, will not mean 
in Israeli imagining, in Israeli planning, and I think Hamas would have factored this as well, this will not mean the end of all military operations. I think Israel will stay in part of the Gaza Strip and that you would have an ongoing Israeli military deployment. Prime Minister Netanyahu has talked about this. Um, and Israel would do raids into those bits of Gaza that it has not gone in, occupied, cleared out, whatever one wants to to call this. There is so much destruction that there is a greater ability to do that. If they do continue, now that you have displaced the majority of the population of Palestinians in Gaza, and they are in an even more enclosed area, if they do continue, I think that civilian casualties are going to go even more exponentially high. Look, people have been told, go to the South for safety, and the South is also being bombed. But if that were to intensify, then I think we're in an even worse place. Two last thoughts on this. First of all, as you said, the desire to see this come to an end from the outside has increased. The Biden administration seems now to be leaning in. And lastly, I think this partly depends on what Israel has in mind vis-a-vis Hezbollah. On the one hand, the longer this goes on, the more one is hostage to fortune because the Hezbollah front will continue to be open. And we have not heard the final word yet on what Israel's intentions are with the North. There's a sense that both sides have managed the, the escalation and not decided to go the whole distance. But any de-escalation would have to take into account the North as well. There's obviously now a lot of talk about the day after the military operation, sort of what happens in Gaza, if Hamas isn't going to govern, who is? And some of the options floating around, uh, which we've talked about on previous episodes at the Palestinian Authority, though, as we just talked about with Tahani, it's not clear the PA itself is interested and Netanyahu has ruled it out. There's this idea of an international or an Arab force. Again, it seems a bit unrealistic, not clear that Israel would entrust its security to such a force. But in any case, all the talk of a day afterwards seems sort of a bit disconnected from what's actually happening on the ground, which is that much of Gaza has been destroyed. Most of the people who lived in the north of Gaza are now in the south. Many of them don't have homes or even neighbourhoods to go back to. Prime Minister Netanyahu himself has sort of implied that there's going to be this extended period of Israeli control of the north. But even if Israel withdraws, it's likely to want to go in and out, as you say, to kill Hamas leaders, militants that are left. So what do you make of the, the sort of day after in Gaza debate? Yeah, incredible levels of destruction. The, the housing stock has been decimated. The governing offices, the, you know, all the, the databases. So it's not an attractive proposition to be asked to take over. Now, I think partly that's because Israel did not plan for the morning after. And I think it's been a lot of making it up as you go along, including. I don't think one should pretend that you do not have a stream senior inside this Israeli governing coalition who openly want ethnic cleansing and who openly want the forced removal of the population in Gaza, and they see that as a model for the West Bank and elsewhere, and they talk this language, so I see no reason we shouldn't take them seriously. They talk this language of making this a Palestinian-free uh, territory. However, they've not gotten there. I don't think the pressure uh, on Egypt is, is done with to, uh, to admit Palestinians. 
But what does that leave us with? I think that the Palestinian Authority, under these circumstances, with Israel continuing to to be present in Gaza militarily, to continue to conduct raids, and given its own huge legitimacy deficit with its own public, the Palestinian Authority would be ill-advised to be the force that works with Israel inside Gaza under these circumstances, absent many other things happening. To me, that doesn't mean that it definitely won't, because it does lots of ill-advised things in its current very weakened incarnation. I agree with you. I think the idea of an international force is fantastical. I think what we, what we may see in the first phases, what we may see is a muddling through where UN and humanitarian agencies are doing the heavy lift. And Israel is essentially the, the security force in there. And there's a lot of chaos. So, Daniel, I want to end by talking about the, the sort of longer, longer term, because people are thinking about this. So we'll come in a moment to sort of what any political track between Israelis and Palestinians, although it seems a long way off for now, we'll come in a moment to what a political track should aim toward. But maybe could I ask first about the US's role in some ways, the you know the month and a bit of this latest war shows very starkly a problem that has long been evident that on one hand, the US is not completely unconditional, but pretty close support for Israel is a big part of the problem. It doesn't necessarily help Israel make good decisions. But at the same time, it's only the US that stands a chance of reining things in. The US here has found itself somewhat caught up in an approach that has been taken to the question of Palestine-Israel, the approach to Middle East peacemaking, which has been really to try and park this. If you heard the speeches of National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, of Secretary Blinken, in the months leading up to this, they were talking about a new architecture that they were building. They talked about I2U2, India, Israel, UAE, US, which was a new innovation. And they talked about the Negev Forum. And this brought together the normalization countries in the US. And this was building on the Trump normalization, but it was an innovation of the Biden administration. And then in the margins of the G20 in Delhi, they announced something called IMEC, a new add-on to the alphabet soup, the India-Middle East-Europe corridor. So this is what, what they thought they were building. And boom, the root causes, which they had worked so hard to pretend didn't exist, blew up in their face. Now, the question is, do we just go back to this uh, when the guns are silent? I think elements of it, perhaps, yes. But I also tend to think that you have a problem. There is such a thing as Arab public opinion. Yes, the, the structure of most of the regimes is such that it is something that can be more managed. But we saw it already in many places. The Qatar World Cup was a great example where Morocco had normalized with Israel and every time, and they won quite a few games, the Moroccan national team, and every time they advanced the stage, there they were with the Palestinian flag on the pitch. And you saw it in the supporters that came from across the Arab world. So the cause is there. And now this has taken it to a place where I'm not saying 
continued relations with Israel will be impossible. But I think they are going to be more strained. Regimes are going to understand the level of the embarrassment factor that might come with this. And the theory that normalization was the on-ramp to peace, which never had any credibility. The Israelis always saw this as normalization was the way to prove that the Palestinians were vanquished and you didn't have to deal with the Palestinian question. Those countries that normalized have not stepped up. So one of the takeaways from this is, of course, you need America. But if you want to prevent these kinds of explosions, America will need to relate differently to Israel than how it does. I don't think you could have had Ben Gavir and Smotrich as senior government ministers, these two extreme people committed to ethnic cleansing, etc., if you hadn't have had America guaranteeing Israeli impunity. And secondly, you probably need a new architecture that cannot be monopolistically dominated by America. Perhaps there was a time when we thought Europe could balance out America. We are way past that. Europe is either more extreme than America or at least in America's slipstream. So you are going to need other actors, Arab actors, and perhaps others in this new fluid mid-level global South powers who are going to lean in on this issue if you want some balance and if you want to make progress. So then the question is, what is left for them to lean in on? And one of the things that's happened since the 7th of October is this renewal of interest or at least expressions of interest in Western capitals in Palestinian statehood or at least the idea of not abandoning Palestinian national aspirations. Now, maybe that's a good thing, but there's obviously a pretty big disconnect between that rhetoric and the impunity with which Israel and the settlers are acting in the West Bank that we heard about. And of course, there's the destruction now of Gaza. For a long time, people have been sceptical about whether there is enough left for a Palestinian state. And now there's even less. I mean, it's gone backwards. And at the same time, it's also hard after the last few weeks to see two peoples living in a single state, enjoying the same rights and freedoms. So... The recognition, at least by some Western leaders, that some political horizon is important. I mean, great, but what political horizon? So first of all, it's very important that while this is being called a Gaza war, this is an Israel-Palestine crisis. This is about the Palestinian expanse, and it's very important to acknowledge that. Secondly, it's important to acknowledge that right now, we are in a mutual zero-sum space in many respects. And how do you pull back from that? Now, if I'm trying to think about what one could therefore be looking at, maybe there are three phases. Phase one is ending what's going on now. Getting to a ceasefire, that probably won't mean that there's no elements of, of an ongoing clashing Gaza or ongoing Israeli military operations, but getting to the end of the daily images we're seeing now out of Gaza. Phase two, which I think is the building block for then making a political effort. And I think phase two, Palestinians will have to grapple with the question of their own political representation and leadership. Who speaks for the Palestinians? What does one do with the fact that Hamas will still continue to exist and probably needs to be inside a political process? What does one do with the fact that Abbas does not carry legitimacy inside his own community? That's one element. The second element is 
can Israel's allies summon up the political will to seriously engage with the direction Israel is taking things? There is a strong possibility there will be political change in Israel, but the center in Israel does not have a plan that you can go anywhere with on the Palestinian question. So does one try and make the most of that potential political opening in Israel? And how do you do what we discussed, the international architecture of that? What kind of a contact group is it? So that's the second phase. And then the third phase is that question of what is one trying to achieve? Now, there are so many, over 700,000 Israeli illegal settlers living beyond the green line. Is it possible to actually have a sovereign, viable, deoccupied Palestinian state? Is that more fantastical or is accepting the reality of the one state that has been created and turning that into a political solution more fantastical? I actually think we will only find out the answer to that question if the parties, and in this case, the power asymmetry really matters, if the powerful party actually thinks it has to make a choice. Are we going to withdraw an occupation, allow for a sovereign Palestinian state, or can we not unscramble this and therefore People live with equal rights, two national communities in a federal system, whatever it is. I think the position of the international community should go from a slavish rhetorical filialty to there only being one possible outcome to saying we have traditionally backed what we understood to be the best way out of this and the way that best secured the national aspirations of both peoples, which has been a two state solution. Maybe we even still think that's the best idea. But... What we cannot accept is the permanent denial of one people's rights, and therefore we only set one rule. Both of these peoples will have rights and security, because if Palestinians don't have security, neither will Israelis, and we will have to deal with the consequences. Daniel, thanks so much for coming on. Good to speak to you, Richard. Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. You can find all of our work on Israel-Palestine on our website, crisisgroup.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at Crisis Group. Thanks to our producers, Kevin Murphy, Heiko Schaub. And thanks, of course, as ever, to all of you, our listeners. Please do get in touch. Podcast at crisisgroup.org. You can also write to me directly, atwood at crisisgroup.org. If you have any questions, suggestions or concerns, if you like the show, please do leave us a positive rating or review. Tell your friends and colleagues about us. And I very much hope you'll join us again next week.